Well, greetings, everyone. Welcome to the AGS Aging Initiative Learning Collaborative webcast. The goal of the Learning Collaborative, for those who are not familiar with it, is to provide learning opportunities in the science of multiple comorbid diseases or multiple chronic conditions for those interested in pursuing research in this understudied area. Today, we're going to focus on some of the important aspects of epidemiology, biological aspects of multiple chronic conditions, and some of the gaps in knowledge where more work is needed. We hope this will provide some background for those that are interested in this area and some thoughts on where more work is needed for those new to this area, as well as others who are launching new areas of investigation. We're very fortunate to have three experts who have given considerable thought to this issue and are going to talk to us in turn about epidemiology, biology, and unaddressed areas for those who are interested in delving into this area more, more deeply. Let's start by asking Dr. Stephanie Stadinsky, what is meant when we talk about multiple chronic conditions? And what, what do you view as some of the most important things those new to the study of MCCs should know about? Well, Jay, uh, as you said, the definition is two uh, or more coexisting chronic conditions, and that can be measured as a disease count. It could be weighed by severity, and it could include indicators of functional status. Some of the basic things everyone needs to know is uh, how common this problem is. Overall, among U.S. adults, about a quarter have uh, multiple chronic conditions, but age is a powerful influence on this, so that only about 10% of young adults have MCC, whereas two-thirds of adults over age 65 are likely to have multiple uh, chronic conditions. If you're interested in international uh, issues related to MCC, what we know so far is about a third have uh, MCC, but that it's very difficult to measure because uh, disease detection it varies greatly between countries. Also, the age distribution of the population varies between countries. What we do know is that MCCs are increasing in prevalence over time, in part due to the overall population aging. Some of the things we know about what affects prevalence is uh, sex overall. It's about the same for men and women, but in older age, more women than a, uh, men. We know that lower socioeconomic status affects the prevalence of MCCs, and we know that mental health issues uh, are associated with a higher prevalence of MCC. Well, that's all very helpful, um, and I think it really sheds a lot of light on how epidemiology can provide some of the insights and information as background to the study of MCCs. Why do you think MCCs are so important for population health, healthcare, and policymakers? Why is it important for them all to consider? Because we know that having multiple chronic conditions uh, increases the risk of death, of functional disability, of the need for a caregiver, reduced physical and cognitive function, depression, and reduced quality of life. In addition, MCCs increase healthcare use and costs. 
and have major implications for how we organize healthcare for older people. Well, let's turn next to um, Dr. Ferrucci. Luigi, in some of your work, um, the whole area of geroscience comes up. For a group of people who may not really appreciate what is encompassed by geroscience, can you talk some about what geroscience is and what it represents? In general, we have been accustomed to study each disease as if they had a very unique pathophysiology that lead to them, and so they need specific treatment. But more recently, people have been starting to believe that um, the biological mechanism of aging are the root cause of multiple chronic diseases. So, so for example, when you try to dissect uh, in uh, longitudinal studies, you know, those who have a disease and those that who do not have a disease, then you look at the aging process and the disease, uh, you know, kind of uh, evolve into each other without a clear dissection and cleavage between them. This has important implication because if the Biology of aging is at, at, at the cause of major That's chronic disease. Then, then um, intervening on the biology of aging will be extremely powerful to not only reduce morbidity, but also expand the health expectancy, the period of life that is characterized by health, where individual can really enjoy everything that life has to offer. And one of the proof, I think, that, that this hypothesis is, is probably correct, is that uh, with age, you have uh, an increased uh, global susceptibility to disease, and disease tend to accumulate and aggregate, even though they may not be pathophysiologically correlated. And these uh, uh, increase in susceptibility to the disease is what is causing multimorbidity. There is evidence, for example, that some of the characteristics uh, of biological aging are risk factor for not only multimorbidity, but also the rate of the increase in multimorbidity individual. The most typical is inflammation. So those who have chronic inflammation, such as a high level of IL-6 or C-reactive protein, tend to accumulate disease earlier in life and more rapidly than others that do not have inflammation. And that is one of the proof, or, or at least element, that people make people think that, that, that the, the geroscience hypothesis is really a window of opportunity for a new medicine. So I think you said inflammation might be one of the key factors that people are paying a lot of attention to now. What are some of the factors that might produce increased levels or decreased levels of inflammation and how that then might affect many organ systems? I, I think that that's a great question. You know, certainly we know that smoking is associated with high inflammation. We know that obesity is associated with high inflammation. We know that certain diets uh, are pro-inflammatory, while other diets seem to be anti-inflammatory, such as the Mediterranean diet. We know that acute exercise associated with high level of pro-inflammatory marker, but over time, those who exercise tend to have a decline of inflammation. 
So there are elements uh, in your behavior and in your environmental factors that can increase or reduce inflammation. And those are as variable as you can think of. For example, it's been demonstrated that uh, people who are doing uh, some uh, meditation work People that try to reduce stress by this method that tend to have experienced a decline of inflammation. While people that are subject to a stressful environment, to a stressful work, tend to have a higher inflammation. So I think there are, we need to understand what are the recommendations that we can give to people. You know, one of the things, for example, that very few people know is that the good sleep is fundamental. You know, sleeping less or more than seven hours is associated with high inflammation to accelerated aging and recently has also been associated with uh, a higher risk of developing, uh, you know, MCC. And, and so I think that we're not bored with multimorbidity, but, but to some extent, uh, you know, we can do something to reduce the burden of if someone um, experiences this inflammation and there it's occurring, isn't part of the geroscience principle, or how does that play into understanding what could actually interrupt that or or prevent the further progression of disease? What you've talked about is how the inflammation might be prevented or modified. I mean, there's a lot of seeking sort of What's the magic bullet here, or is there a magic bullet? Everybody is looking for the magic pill, which, yeah. uh, as you well know, does not exist. But, but I think that you know we started with a wide range of theory of the why of inflammation, and I think that we're converging uh, on uh, two main phenomena. One is, uh, you know, the dysfunction of mitochondria. You know, the mitochondria are those powerhouses that are in cell, and when they become dysfunctional, they produce uh, substances that are strongly pro-inflammatory. And that, that's one, and that's why probably exercise is anti-inflammatory because uh, make your mitochondria healthier. But the second, even more interesting, is that uh, we know now that with aging, you have the accumulation. Uh, of cells that are stressed. We call them senescent cells. And one of the things that uh, characterize them is that they arrest replication. They can no longer replicate and they produce uh, what we call the senescent associated secretory phenotype. It is a number of molecules. Many of these molecules have a very, very strong pro-inflammatory state. And for example, in humans, uh, those cells accumulate mostly in preadipocyte, and that's probably why obesity has been associated with inflammation, especially central obesity. So those are the two main theories. There are many, many other, some of them, for example, associated with the change in the microbiome that occurred with AG, but, yes. but this will be a long list. Yep, well, thank you. Now, now let me circle back to um, Stephanie. And Stephanie, thinking about those that are new to this area of MCCs and thinking of your both your clinical background and your work in epidemiology for many years, what do you think are some of the areas that someone new to this field who's inclined toward population health and epidemiology and with that kind of background would want to focus on to get more substantive understanding of MCCs 
in a way that could really inform this this problem that we're that we're going to continue to see more of. Well, thanks for asking, Jay. I think there are several things the new uh, young investigators uh, should be thinking about. The first is uh, if you're not a clinician and uh, you're pursuing research related to population health, I think you should ask to go see real old people, you know, whether you accompany patients in the clinic or perhaps interview patients in um, epidemiologic studies, get out there on the front line. I think there's tremendous opportunities to come up with creative ideas by really experiencing the life and situations of people with multiple chronic conditions. Another is, of course, to read the literature. I think that epidemiology is most effective when it is working within a conceptual framework to identify what is already known, where are the gaps in knowledge. And so, for example, there's a a paper by uh, Dr. Salive of the NIA and others in medical care in 2021 that sets up a framework that relates multimorbidity to causative factors and outcomes. I think more could be done, uh, frankly, to expand this so that it is more translational. So again, the idea is to look at what is known and identify gaps in knowledge, either purely uh, at the uh, population level in terms of evidence for causative factors that might be uh, intervened on, to um, look at where we're at in beginning to actually do population intervention studies, to look at uh, interactions among specific conditions, but also things there's tremendous opportunities for translational research. And I, I think that includes reverse translation. So if you're a population scientist, make friends with some um, biology of aging people and think about things that you observe in populations that might be evaluated in animal models or uh, what's coming up in animal models that you might be able to evaluate in uh, human studies. I think there are more and more low invasive, uh, low burden assessments that can be done in humans. Those would be some of my thoughts, Jay. That's great. Those are really some creativity and some thinking beyond what the traditional epidemiology may have taught you and moving moving beyond that if you haven't already. I think we already um, have some examples of creative thinking. Luigi could probably clarify if I'm correct, but I believe that dentists have suggested that um, Gingival disease, periodontal disease is a major source of inflammation. It's very interesting to think about going beyond just what doctors see uh, and looking more broadly at sources of uh, some of these biological drivers of inflammation or uh, changes in energy metabolism. Well, Luigi, coming at this now from the biological perspective, where would you either connect to the epidemiology or to the population level in a translational manner, or how would you advise the biologist, someone who's really grown up in a microbiology lab or a in a, a lab in immunology or, or a physiology lab? 
where should they focus their attention to understand more about MCCs? Well, I, I, thank, thank you, Jay. And uh, Stephen, you're absolutely right. I think that, uh, you know, we know that the gingival tissue is uh, the strongest productor of interleukin-6, which is a major inflammatory mark in our body. So it's very clear epidemiologically, but not so also clinically, that uh, maintaining uh, oral health uh, is really tantamount for the entire health, not only for the mouth, or for the heart, for the lungs, uh, for everything. And, and this is an important basic principle because uh, all the tissues are connected. We started, and when I was studying medicine, you know, everything was in chapter. We studied the lung, we studied the mouth, we studied, and, and, and now we're thinking aging is pervasive across the entire uh, body, and the different tissues are communicating each other. So the dysfunction of one tissue really percolate in other tissue, you know, almost always. And so that, that's a, it's a different way of approaching patients. But, but for the specific of your question, first of all, I, 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 I have experienced that. You know, I started as a clinician, a geriatrician, and then I became an epidemiologist. And some of my friends will tell you that I went to the dark side and I started to be interested in mechanism. But I think those, I think, are very much connected. So my experience is that uh, the people that are in the lab and do the molecular biology are really curious to know whether what they're doing is, uh, is true, it is relevant, it's important, has implications for health or not. At the same time, you know, the clinicians have a lot of questions that they not address by only looking at patients, but they would like to go back. You know, I think that my frustration as a geriatrician was that I couldn't do enough for my patient. And, and many can see research as a possibility to expand our possibility to improve the health and quality of life of, of our especially those that are affected by multimorbidity and disability. Now, if you have multimorbidity, what you want is an intervention that works across disease, because otherwise you end up having uh, 20 different drugs <laughs> to cure the 10 diseases that are affecting people. Why, ideally, you want to have one, two interventions that uh, work across multiple diseases. So, so I think that the tension for this connection is there, mm -hmm. but structurally, we don't facilitate that. You know, the, the most of the time, the building where the um, molecular biology, where the labs are, and the building where the geriatric program is developing are separated. So the import opportunity of meeting is it, 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 related to the few formal meeting you create and all that informal possibility of communicating to your colleague is not there. So I think that we need structurally to put this together. A little bit is has been done with the Pepper Center, but, but it, it are, are really single you know, experiences. I think that that uh, generating a movement that connect uh, you know, the geroscience expert uh, and the clinician, maybe by having the geroscience expert spend some time with the clinician and see 
what are the problems that they are confronting and and asking to the judiciary, what is that you really need from us? You know, what are the issues that we would like us to address? And I think that uh, that will make us make a lot of progress and also will make uh, the life uh, of, of the clinician and of the biology more satisfactory. They will enjoy it a lot more. Stephanie, did you want to say something else? I just wanted to say that I think there are opportunities for some cross-training and cross-exposure. Uh, I think if you're an epidemiologist, you ought to go to the labs. I, I think you can also see not just how things are done, but just like in your own field, you know where the weaknesses and the bugs and the methodologic challenges are. I think it's important for scientists to understand the challenges that scientists and other fields play. Uh, the only thing I wanted to add is that I, I think the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging, which Dr. Frucci leads, is an exemplar of trying to look at issues like MCC and the relationship between human and free clinical and bench-based studies, both directions, and finding more ways to apply what we learn in the lab to humans so uh, I don't know if you've written about that lately, uh, Dr. Frucci, but I think it's an example of how to do that integration. Okay, hold on. Luigi, we're going to leave that as a challenge for you if you haven't written about it, because I think we'd all be waiting for that next chapter. But I think what we're hearing for the new investigator is that new work is needed at the interfaces of the biology, the clinical, the population, that we need to be looking at the space between. And if we're thinking of new areas for the future and the growing older population, those may be some of the most fruitful. And to your advantage, so many things are untapped. You really just need to master what's there and look at how to really start bringing them together. Uh, next, we have uh, Dr. Raphael Semper-Turnant from University of Texas in Houston. Thank you. So it's good to be here. I'm an associate professor in the School of Public Health at UT Health Houston, and I'm also part of the Division of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine at McGovern Medical School, and I lead the Research and Clinical Innovation Core for the Institute on Aging at UT Health Houston. Okay, Dr. Semper Turnant, having had this discussion about some important issues in the epidemiology and biology of aging, what do you view as some of the most important knowledge gaps in the study of multiple chronic conditions? So I would say that there are three big ones that I can think of right now. So one is I think we need to do a better job describing trends in uh, multimorbidity and also disparities. So it's clear that certain groups of populations, uh, I work a lot with older Hispanics, have disadvantages that really impact how they experience multimorbidity. But I still think that we need to better understand the pathways that lead to those disparities. The second place where I think we need to fill in gaps is when we think about multimorbidity, it's not just the number of clinical conditions, right? It's not the same thing to have dementia, hypertension, and diabetes than to have congestive heart failure, 
and chronic kidney disease and diabetes, right? They they have different implications in terms of screening, in terms of uh, management, in terms of medication regimes, in terms of outcomes. So I think we need to do a better job understanding and studying the clusters of conditions in adults with multiple chronic conditions. And that leads to the third gap where there's a lot of opportunity for research, and it's to describe those clusters and identify how they impact disease burden. And we can define disease burden in in many ways, but I think what are the implications of those uh, clusters of conditions in outcomes that are important and significant for diverse older adults? Thank you. I, w- I want to track back to a couple of these. You mentioned more description of of the disparities and diversity of the population in terms of trends or or um, occurrence of comorbid conditions. You talked about pathways. What did you have in mind when you talked about pathways? So when we talk about disparities in, in certain groups of populations, uh, being Hispanic or being Black is not the cause of the difference in outcomes, right? So how uh, things like stress get under your skin, how differences in how guidelines are used or not used, uh, how access to healthcare and different types of preventive or specialized care uh, lead to different results. I think we don't have a, a good grasp and understanding of the mechanisms that lead to those disparities. And I think this is a prime time to look at large data sets, longitudinal data sets that include both longitudinal data and biomarkers to actually get into those uh, biological pathways that actually lead to those disparities. So when you think of the many things that are yet to be investigated in this field, which is really just getting its sea legs and taking off as an area of interest and investigation. What do you see as the areas that are sort of where a new person to the field might want to focus some attention? This is prime time for a lot of research going into multimorbidity. So I think anyone that wants to go into multimorbidity is is coming into it in a great moment in time because we have lots of data sets, we have lots of clinical data, lots of buy-in from systems that want to understand uh, multimorbidity. But I think from the clinical uh, standpoint, and it's closely related to some of my work, I think we also need to shift the paradigm of how we manage older adults with multiple chronic conditions. So the guideline-based approach where we take hypertension and diabetes and congestive heart failure and try to treat each of the three conditions separately has gotten us into a lot of trouble and very poor outcomes for older adults in general. So I, I, I think we need to take advantage of the more holistic approach that we're now taking to actually do patient-centered care and focus on the values that patients have, their healthcare goals, and then focus a lot of the work into what patients actually want. But from the basic science perspective, I think there is a universe of opportunities to go into linked data sets that have, as I mentioned before, biomarkers and clinical data and try to look at the more basic uh, biological pathways that lead to 
differences in so we know that a kidney of a person with hypertension and diabetes is not the same as the kidney of a person without those conditions, right? So what does that biological variability uh, mean in terms of functionality, morbidity, burden of disease, hospital admissions, functional status? So you can go on and on and on and looking into. So I think there are opportunities for both the basic sciences the clinical sciences and obviously the translational sciences trying to feed the basic science into clinical interventions and back and forth. So I think there's a universe of opportunities. So what I'm hearing you say, and I agree with you, is that with so little known already, someone new to this field, the only thing really holding them back is knowledge of the little that has been done and their imagination and observation of the many factors that might come into play in their own special areas of expertise or interest. So I think that there's really, really a tremendous opportunity. I want to thank you all for joining us today. And I want to let everyone know um, that each of them have prepared a slide set, which should be um, readily available to you at the AGS Learning Collaborative website. Um, so we hope this has been informative, and we thank you all for listening.